our subject matter for this series, which will be today, tomorrow, and the following day, is the study of the attributes of God. Uh, the importance of this subject cannot be overstated. Uh, I cannot think of a greater subject than God. Can you? Uh, there is no higher subject for us to consider than the being of God. Many years ago, A.W. Tozier stated it so profoundly, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The concept of God that most quickly comes into your mind is the most determinative influence in your life. It is the rudder of the ship of your life. It is what directs your life. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we all live out our most basic understanding of who God is. It is our knowledge of God that ultimately determines and defines and directs everything in our lives. You tell me what you believe about God, and I will tell you the rest about your life. Because our lives are simply the overflow of what comes into our minds when we think of God. God is that important. God is that determinative in our lives. As your knowledge of God goes, so goes your life. It is our knowledge of God that determines how we see the entire world around us. The ultimate worldview is shaped by our knowledge of God. The attributes of God are like the template, the, the, the paradigm through which we see the world around us. It's how we size up world events. It's how we understand circumstances. It's how we understand ourselves. The knowledge of God is the interpretive key that unlocks our self-awareness, our self-consciousness, and how we see the world around us. It is our knowledge of God that shapes how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we speak. It is our knowledge of God that most shapes what we believe, how we worship, how we live, how we serve, how we invest our time, how we invest our talent, how we invest our treasure. It is our knowledge of God that even shapes how we will die. I want to say again, our knowledge of God, as our knowledge of God goes, so goes the entire flow of our lives. There is nothing higher in your life than your knowledge of God. It is to climb to the summit. It is to ascend to the apex of everything inside of you. A high view of God leads to high and holy living. A high view of God leads to transcendent worship. It leads to triumphant living. A low view of God leads to low living and low, trivial worship 
of God. A wrong view of God leads to wrong believing and wrong living. Everything hinges upon who we believe God is. We cannot be wrong about God and right elsewhere. We must be right about God. God is the chief cornerstone in our lives. And it is around him everything must be brought into alignment. We're not bringing God into alignment with our lives. We're bringing our lives into alignment with God. So in this series, I want us to talk about God. And I want to talk about God under the specific heading of the attributes of God. Let's begin with number one, what is an attribute of God? This is to begin at the most basic meaning. The word attribute refers to the qualities that belong to the being of God. It is a characteristic of God's character of God's being. It is who God is and what God is. An attribute of God refers to the divine character. It refers to the divine nature. It is the personage of God, the perfections of God the qualities of God, the essence of God, the being of God. If you're to truly know a person, you must know what they are like. And in order to grow in your knowledge and your relationship with God, you and I must know what God is like. When I married my wife, Anne, I knew her but now in comparison, as I look back over 34 years, I, I barely knew her. And as I have lived with her and grown closer to her, my knowledge of her has deepened and broadened and heightened. And my relationship with her has drawn closer and closer so it is in our relationship with God. When we were saved, we entered into the knowledge of God. That's what eternal life is. It is the knowledge of God, the saving knowledge of God. But that was only the beginning. As we now grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the knowledge of God, there is none with whom we can compare God. Moses exclaimed in Exodus 15:11, "Who is like you among the gods, O Lord?" The answer to that is no one. God's in a category by himself. There's a sense in which I can compare London to New York to Los Angeles to Paris, and there are similarities and comparisons, but God is in a category unto himself. Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, What God is there in heaven or on earth 
who can do such works? And the answer is none. Psalm 71, 19. Oh God, who is like you? Question mark. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is so obvious that he does not even bother to answer the question. To ask the question is to answer the question. There is no one like God. Psalm 35, verse 10. Lord, who is like you? Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Well, I want us to explore in this series, just skimming the surface of God. You and I will never plumb the depths nor ascend to the heights, for the finite cannot take in the infinite. What are the attributes of God? They are all taught in Scripture, whether directly stated or reasonably implied. There are many different ways to slice the pie. In the course of our study, we will look at some 15 attributes of God, depending upon the time that we have together. And any different number of systematic theologies or theologians will divide that number up, some more, some less. It's the same pie. But just to give you a survey, just to, to, to do a fly over the subject matter, let me just lay out for you the attributes that we will be considering from Scripture in this series. We will begin with what is called the aseity of God, a S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God, which means the self-existence of God, that God is, God finds his existence within himself, and that God is not dependent upon anything or anyone outside of himself. We are all dependent upon God, and God is dependent upon no one and nothing. Second, we'll consider the spirituality of God, and by that, I do not mean God's own walk with himself. By that, I mean that God is a spirit being. He is not one who possesses a material body. Third, the sovereignty of God. God's position as God, that God rules and reigns over the entirety of his created order, every moment of every day, we are not waiting for the second coming of Christ for God to begin to reign. God is reigning every moment of every day. And it is absolute sovereignty. Fourth, the holiness of God. That God is exalted and transcendent and majestic in the heavens and that he is marked by moral perfection. All of his character and all of his ways are perfect. Uh, fifth, the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere present with the fullness of all that he is. From the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, God is everywhere present. Seventh, 
his omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, nothing is impossible to God. Eighth, his immutability, that God is unchanging in his character, in his being, in his word, in his will, in his judgments. Ninth, God is truthfulness. God is truth. He is the measure of all reality. He is the measure of all truth. And everything is whatever God says it is. Sin is what God says it is. Salvation is what God says it is. And God is faithful to his word. God cannot lie. Tenth, God's wisdom. That God chooses the best means to achieve the highest ends. God knows the best, the best path, the best way to achieve the highest ends. And God's ways are above our ways, and his thoughts are above our thoughts. But not only has God predetermined the highest end by which he will be glorified, but in our individual lives and collectively as peoples, he has already marked out the best means to achieve the highest ends. 11. God is goodness. God is good. He is good to unbelievers. He is especially good to believers. 12. Grace. God shows unmerited favor to those whom he has chosen to be his own. 13. Love. God sacrificially gives of himself to seek the highest good of those to whom he shows grace. Fourteenth, foreknowledge. If time permits, we will discuss the true meaning of the word foreknowledge, which has nothing to do with God looking down the proverbial tunnel of time to see what man will do. There are many reasons for this, not the least of which is God has never learned anything. God doesn't look down the tunnel of time to see what anything will occur because God already knows. Why would he look into the future when he foreordained the future and already knows the future? Instead, the word means those whom he foreloved with distinguishing affection. And fifteenth, wrath, God's severe vengeance as an expression of his holiness, his righteous indignation upon those who have broken his law. There could be other attributes to add, not the least of which would be righteousness, and we will work that in to our study. So these are the attributes of God that we will consider in this study, and I believe that our minds will be enlarged, our hearts will be enlarged, our lives will be encouraged 
and humbled as we consider the attributes of God. Now, number three, not only what are the attributes of God, number three, what are the relationships of the attributes of God? Well, number one, these attributes of God are qualities of the entire Godhead. Each attribute is equally true for each person of the Trinity. What is true of the Father is true of the Son is true of the Spirit. They are co-equal in their attributes. Not only is God the Father perfectly holy, but so also is the Son, the Holy One. So also is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Each person is equally omniscient, equally loving, equally full of wrath, equally truthful. The Son is not more loving than the Father, nor the Father more loving than the Son, the entire Godhead, each person within the Trinity is equally marked by each attribute. Second, these attributes are eternally permanent qualities of God. That is to say, God has been eternally each of these attributes. No attribute can be gained. No attribute can be lost. It's a part of the immutability of God. If God were to forfeit any attribute or lessen in any attribute, God would cease to be God. If God were to become any attribute, even in eternity past, that would have meant that God would have been less than God. It's important as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God was equally loving in the Old Testament, and he is equally wrathful in the New Testament. There is no diminishing of the wrath of God moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and there is no increase in the love of God moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the same God with the same attributes from eternity past throughout all of time into eternity present. Third, these attributes are inseparably connected. No divine attribute can be separated from any other attribute. Each attribute is a part of the whole that comprises the entire being of God. Think of it this way, God's holiness. Every other attribute of God is marked by this holiness. His love is holy love. His wrath is holy wrath. His power is holy power. His righteousness is holy righteousness. Every attribute is inseparably connected with the whole of God's being. There is no division within God himself. No one divine attribute can be thought of 
in a fragment. This is known as the simplicity of God. And by that, we do not mean that God is a simple being. Because as soon as we begin the study of God, we have stepped off into the deep end of the pool. By simplicity, we mean that God is... God cannot be divided into parts. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian in America, a man I work very closely with, describes it this way. Sproul writes, This is one way to affirm what is called the simplicity of God. God is a simple being rather than a complex being who can be divided into parts. A human being is a complex being with a head, ears, eyes, nose, arms, feet, various organ parts. When we seek to understand God, though, we tend to project our human complexity onto his being. We list his attributes, immutability, eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, holiness, and all of the others. We sometimes tend to think that God is made up of one part holiness, one part immutability, one part omnipotence, and several other parts. But all of God is all of his attributes in their entirety. Sproul writes, God's holiness is immutable. God's holiness is omnipotent. God's holiness is eternal. God's holiness is omnipresent. In like manner, his immutability is holy. His immutability is omniscient. His immutability is eternal. His omnipotence is not arbitrary or capricious, but holy and immutable. God's power never weakens, for it is unchangeable. Every attribute we ascribe to God applies to the whole of God. As attributes all exist mutually in a kind of reciprocality of attributes. Close quote. Herman Bavinick, great Dutch reformer, writes, every attribute is identical with God's being by reason of the fact that every one of God's virtues is absolutely perfect in God. So we've considered the relationships just initially between the attributes that comprise God's character. Fourth, why are they important? Why are they so important? Why study the attributes of God. What will be the take-home for you from this series? Why is it worth taking notes? Why is it worth paying attention? Why is it worth absorbing this? Why, why is it worth taking off from work to be here for this? I want to lay out several reasons for you by way of introduction to our series. Reason number one would be transcendent worship. 
The higher our knowledge of God, the higher our worship will be of God. That just makes sense, does it not? We need a breathtaking view of God, an eye-popping, jaw-dropping, mind-expanding, heart-rending, knee-bending, life-giving view of God, do we not? It's low views of God that causes the church to immerse itself in trivialities in worship. It is our theology that drives our doxology. If you have a high view of God, you ought to be able to meet in the catacombs of Rome and worship God without any electricity. If you have a high view of God, you ought to be able to be in the bowels of a, of the, of a ship crossing the Atlantic with the pilgrims and to be able to worship God with transcendent worship without any other side supports. The greater our knowledge of God, the greater will be our worship of God. And think of it this way, the word glory, G-L-O-R-Y, glory, can be divided into two main categories, intrinsic glory, ascribed glory. The intrinsic glory of God is the sum and substance of all that God is. It is all of the attributes of God manifested and, and revealed. And there is nothing that you and I can do to increase the intrinsic glory of God. God is who God is. He is the God who was and who is and who shall be forever. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The intrinsic glory of God, we cannot give intrinsic glory to God. It is all of the perfections of eternal God together made known. Ascribed glory is our response to intrinsic glory. Ascribed glory is the worship that is due his name. Ascribed glory is the glory that we are to give to God, the praise, the worship. To the extent you have a growing understanding of the intrinsic glory of God, there will be increased ascribed glory to God. Limited understanding of the intrinsic glory of God will result in a more limited ascribed glory to God. But as we have our intrinsic glory, the knowledge of the intrinsic glory of God enlarged, there will be the proper response, which is to ascribe glory to God. So, why is this series important? Everything about your worship hinges on it. 
You were made to worship God. Second, not only transcendent worship. Second, humble living. This is the great pride crusher. To see God high and lifted up. And to see myself in light of God. And to realize what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? That's not a whole lot. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Egomaniacs are those who have never seen God. Those who have a higher and ever-ascending knowledge of God are brought lower and lower before this God. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The closer you draw to the light, the more you see your own imperfections. Is that not true? And the more you are off in the shadows, the more you live in darkness, you look just fine to yourself. But as you grow closer to the light, it's a very humbling experience. As you see not only your own sins, but your own limitations, your own weakness. And by the way, this is what drives our prayer life. Only desperate people truly pray. And when you see how great God is, you call out for his grace. Third, why is this important? Well, number one, transcendent worship. Number two, humble living. Number three, spiritual maturity. And the more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we mature in our spiritual walk with Him. The knowledge of God produces godliness. And the more I know God, the more I become like God. Like produces like. Second Corinthians 3, at the end of the chapter, we become like that which we look at, which we, which we contemplate, which we meditate. The more I'm focused upon God, the more I'm riveted upon God, the more I am conformed into his likeness. Listen, the more I think about the world, the more I become like the world. A low view of God sets a low ceiling over my spiritual growth. I can't grow any higher. But it is a high view of God that sets a high ceiling over my spiritual growth. Fourth, why are the attributes of God so important? Fourth, because of effective ministry. The more I know God, the more I want to serve God. The more I want to tell others about God. The more I want to teach others about God. The more I want to witness to others about God. Because God is just bigger and bigger and greater and greater. I, it, I'm exploding on the inside. I've got to tell others. If you don't have a great God, then you're going to have to have a program. 
to crank it out. But as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a fire in your bones. You cannot keep it to yourself. Fifth, why are the attributes so important for personal encouragement? There is no greater encouragement and comfort than the knowledge of our God. Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which he lays his head at night. The more I know God, the more I can trust God. Jerry Bridges has written a book entitled Trusting God. Maybe some of you have read it. He takes just three attributes and develops the whole book of trusting God around just three attributes. And he says, if you just know these three, you can trust God in the hard times of your life. You can pass through the valley of the shadow of death. You can sail any storm in your life with just the knowledge of three attributes. And, there, and there's far more, which we've already discussed by overview. He takes the love of God, the wisdom of God, and the sovereignty of God and builds an insurmountable case that the triad of these three attributes alone are enough to fortify the weakest soul going through the darkest hour. That God is absolutely sovereign over the circumstances and affairs of my life. That God deeply loves and cares for me and that in perfect wisdom he is causing all things to work together for my good. If I didn't believe in those three attributes, I would be scared to come out of my bedroom. I, I would just hole up in my house and be scared to even walk the streets. But with those three, we can live triumphantly in this world. Let me give you one more. Why study the attributes of God? Personal conversion. Because the study of God, excuse me, the knowledge of God is really the first step into the kingdom of God. To be saved is to know God. You have to know something about God. You may not be a systematic theologian, and you may not have categorized the attributes of God, but you, you've got to know that God's a holy God, and that no sinner's can come into his presence. If you don't know the holiness of God, I, I doubt that you've been saved. You would have to know something of the love of God, something of the grace of God. You'd have to know something of the wrath of God. I mean, R.C. Sproul has written a book, Save from What? It's a good question. And not save from loneliness. Not saved from poor self-image. Not saved from poverty. The answer to that question is saved from God himself. 
and only God can save you from God. Salvation is deliverance from the wrath of Almighty God. I mean, you have to know something of who God is just to even be saved. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and following says, let, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And then, verse 25, God says, Behold, the days are coming that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. To be circumcised is to be a religious Jew in this day and time. To be uncircumcised is to be unregenerate and unconverted. In other words, you're religious but lost. And salvation begins when you come to know God. It's what Jesus said in John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is speaking in accounting terms. He's speaking in financial terms. Paul is thinking of his life as a T-square. Uh, I was a finance major in college, and when I had my accounting classes, to begin with, very simple, T-square, one side assets, the other side liabilities. When Paul saw his life before being converted to Christ, when he was circumcised but uncircumcised, circumcised in body but uncircumcised in heart, Paul would have listed his attributes, excuse me, his assets, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I had going for me to commend myself to God. And that's what a lot of people today even have. Uh, I, I, I was baptized in the church. I grew up in the church. My parents were Christians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Until that day on the Damascus Road when Paul encountered the risen, living Christ. And in that moment, he entered into a saving knowledge of Christ. Who are you? And he answers his own question. Lord, I don't know why you're asking the question. You just answered it. Who are you, Lord? That's how quickly he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. By the time he ended the sentence, it was a pretty short sentence, he entered into the saving knowledge of Christ. And in that moment, everything that was once on the asset side, all of his religious heritage and lineage and, and good works and religiosity, in that moment, he, he transferred everything that was an asset to the, to the liability side. 
He just wrote it off. And there was one journal entry on the asset side, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. Everything is moved over to a liability. It profits me nothing. In fact, he will go on to say, I likened it unto rubbish, scubala, excrement. And only one asset, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how important this subject matter is. It's the first step into the kingdom of God. And we spend the rest of our Christian lives, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge that you and I can never exhaust because the subject is infinite. It is God himself. And throughout all of the ages to come, in eternity, future, in heaven, in our glorified state, we will still never exhaust the knowledge of God. Well, I see my friend, the clock, says that it is 11.30. I long one day to preach in heaven with no clocks. <laughs> and it, you will need a glorified body to endure what all I would have to say, but I'll be out of business in heaven because you will know God and you will know the truth more fully. Let me close in a word of prayer. I understand we have a 30-minute break, and then we come back at 12 noon, I believe. So I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful for this subject matter. I'm, I'm so grateful we're not talking about trivial things today, secondary things today, peripheral things today. I mean, we, we are talking about the very epicenter of what is most important in your spiritual life. Father, thank you for this first session, this first hour, as we just put our toe into the water. Lord, we want to know you. We want an experiential knowledge of you. We don't want to simply know about you. We want to know you. We want to adore you. We want to worship you. And Jesus says we must worship you in spirit and in truth. So give us more of the truth so that we can worship you with more of our inner spirit. We acknowledge that we have more questions than we have answers. But what you have revealed in your word, we want to cling to it. We want to embrace it. We want to internalize it. I pray that you would help us in this. So we look to you. And we ask that you would make us more godly as we study you. In Jesus' name, amen.